Chapter Three of the Spoils of Poynton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spoils of Poynton by Henry James, Chapter Three. They went at last, the wiseheads, down to Poynton, where the palpitating girl had the full revelation. Now do you know how I feel? Mrs. Gareth asked when in the wonderful hall, three minutes after their arrival, her pretty associate dropped on a seat with a soft gasp and a roll of dilated eyes. The answer came clearly enough, and in the rapture of that first walk through the house, Fleda took a prodigious span. She perfectly understood how Mrs. Gareth felt. She had understood but meagerly before, and the two women embraced with tears over the tightening of their bond tears which on the younger one's part were the natural and usual sign of her submission to perfect beauty. It was not the first time she had cried for the joy of admiration, but it was the first time the mistress of Poynton, often as she had shown her house, had been present at such an exhibition. She exulted in it. It quickened her own tears. She assured her companion that such an occasion made the poor old place fresh to her again, and more precious than ever. Yes, nobody had ever, that way, felt what she had achieved. People were so grossly ignorant, and everybody, even the knowing ones, as they thought themselves, more or less dense. What Mrs. Gareth had achieved was indeed an exquisite work, and in such an art of the treasure-hunter, in selection and comparison refined to that point, there was an element of creation, of personality. She had commended Fleda's flair, and Fleda now gave herself up to satiety. Preoccupations and scruples fell away from her. She had never known a greater happiness than the week she passed in this initiation. Wandering through clear chambers where the general effect made preferences almost as impossible as if they had been shocks, pausing at open doors where vistas were long and bland, she would, even if she had not already known, have discovered for herself that Poynton was the record of a life. It was written in great syllables of colour and form, the tongues of other countries in the hands of rare artists. It was all France and Italy, where their ages composed to rest. For England you looked out of old windows. It was England that was the wide embrace. While outside on the low terraces, she contradicted gardeners and refined on nature. Mrs. Gareth left her guest to finger fondly the brasses that Louis XV might have thumbed, to sit with Venetian velvets just held in a loving palm, to hang over cases of enamels, and pass and repass before cabinets. There were not many pictures. The panels and the stuffs were themselves the picture. And in all the great wainscoted house there was not an inch of pasted paper. What struck Fleda most in it was the high pride of her friend's taste, a fine arrogance, a sense of style which, however amused and amusing, never compromised or stooped. She felt indeed, as this lady had intimated to her that she would, both a respect and a compassion that she had not known before. The vision of the coming surrender filled her with an equal pain. To give it all up, to die to it, the thought ached in her breast. She herself could imagine clinging there with a closeness separate from dignity. To have created such a place was to have had dignity enough. 
When there was a question of defending it, the fiercest attitude was the right one. After so intense a taking of possession, she too was to give it up for she reflected that if Mrs. Gareth's remaining there would have offered her a sort of future, stretching away in safe years on the other side of a gulf, the advent of the others could only be, by the same law, a great vague menace, the ruffling of a still water. Such were the emotions of a hungry girl, whose sensibility was almost as great as her opportunities for comparison had been small. The museums had done something for her, but nature had done more. If Owen had not come down with them, nor joined them later, it was because he still found London jolly. Yet the question remained of whether the jollity of London were not merely the only name his small vocabulary yielded for the jollity of Mona Brigstock. There was indeed in his conduct another ambiguity something that required explaining so long as his motive didn't come to the surface. If he was in love, what was the matter? And what was the matter still more if he wasn't? The mystery was at last cleared up. This Fleda gathered from the tone in which, one morning at breakfast, a letter just opened made Mrs. Gareth cry out. Her dismay was almost a shriek. Why, he's bringing her down! He wants her to see the house! They flew, the two women, into each other's arms, and with their heads together soon made out that the reason, the baffling reason why nothing had yet happened, was that Mona didn't know, or Owen didn't, whether Poynton would really please her. She was coming down to judge, and could anything in the world be more like poor Owen than the ponderous probity which had kept him from pressing her for a reply till she should have learned whether she approved what he had to offer her? That was a scruple it had naturally been impossible to impute. If only they might fondly hope, Mrs. Gareth wailed, that the girl's expectations would be dashed. There was a fine consistency, a sincerity quite affecting, in her arguing that the better the place should happen to look and to express the conceptions to which it owed its origin, the less it would speak to an intelligence so primitive. How could a Brigstock possibly understand what it was all about? How, really, could a Brigstock logically do anything but hate it? Mrs. Gareth, even as she whisked away linen shrouds, persuaded herself of the possibility on Mona's part of some bewildered blankness, some collapse of admiration that would prove disconcerting to her swain a hope of which Fleda at least could see the absurdity, and which gave the measure of the poor lady's strange, almost maniacal disposition to thrust in everywhere the question of things, to read all behaviour in the light of some fancied relation to them. Things were, of course, the sum of the world. Only for Mrs. Gareth the sum of the world was rare French furniture and oriental china. She could at a stretch imagine people's not having, but she couldn't imagine their not wanting and not missing. The young couple were to be accompanied by Mrs. Brigstock, and with a prevision of how fiercely they would be watched, Fleda became conscious, before the party arrived, of an amused, diplomatic pity for them. Almost as much as Mrs. Gareth's, her taste was her life, though her life was somehow the larger for it. Besides, she had another care now. There was someone she wouldn't have liked to see humiliated, 
even in the form of a young lady who would contribute to his never suspecting so much delicacy. When this young lady appeared, Fleda tried, so far as the wish to efface herself allowed, to be mainly the person to take her about, show her the house, and cover up her ignorance. Owen's announcement had been that, as trains made it convenient, they would present themselves for luncheon and depart before dinner. But Mrs. Gareth, true to her system of glaring civility, proposed and obtained an extension, a dining and spending of the night. She made her young friend wonder against what rebellion of fact she was sacrificing an advance so profusely to form. Fleda was appalled after the first hour by the rash innocence with which Mona had accepted the responsibility of observation, and indeed by the large levity with which, sitting there like a bored tourist in fine scenery, she exercised it. She felt in her nerves the effect of such a manner on her companions, and it was this that made her want to entice the girl away, give her some merciful warning, or some jocular cue. Mona met intense looks, however, with eyes that might have been blue beads, the only ones she had, eyes into which Fleda thought it strange Owen Gareth should have to plunge for his fate, and his mother for a confession of whether Poynton was a success. She made no remark that helped supply this light. Her impression at any rate had nothing in common with the feeling that, as the beauty of the place throbbed out like music, had caused Fleda Vetch to burst into tears. She was as content to say nothing as if, Mrs. Gareth afterwards exclaimed, she had been keeping her mouth shut in a railway tunnel. Mrs. Gareth contrived at the end of an hour to convey to Fleda that it was plain she was brutally ignorant, but Fleda more finely discovered that her ignorance was obscurely active. She was not so stupid as not to see that something, though she scarcely knew what, was expected of her that she couldn't give, and the only mode her intelligence suggested of meeting the expectation was to plant her big feet and pull another way. Mrs. Gareth wanted her to rise, somehow or somewhere, and was prepared to hate her if she didn't. Very well, she couldn't, she wouldn't rise. She already moved at the altitude that suited her, and was able to see that since she was exposed to the hatred, she might at least enjoy the calm. The smallest trouble, for a girl with no nonsense about her, was to earn what she incurred, so that, a dim instinct teaching her, she would earn it best by not being effusive, and combining with the conviction that she now held Owen, and therefore the place, she had the pleasure of her honesty as well as of her security. Didn't her very honesty lead her to be belligerently blank about Poynton, inasmuch as it was just Poynton that was forced upon her as a subject for effusiveness? Such subjects, to Mona Brigstock, had an air almost of indecency, and the house became uncanny to her through such an appeal, an appeal that, somewhere in the twilight of her being, as Fleda was sure, she thanked heaven she was the girl stiffly to draw back from. She was a person whom pressure at a given point infallibly caused to expand in the wrong place instead of, as it is usually administered in the hope of doing, the right one. Her mother, to make up for this, broke out universally, pronounced everything most striking, 
and was visibly happy that Owen's captor should be so far on the way to strike. But she jarred upon Mrs. Gareth by her formula of admiration, which was that anything she looked at was in the style of something else. This was to show how much she had seen, but it only showed she had seen nothing. Everything at Poynton was in the style of Poynton, and poor Mrs. Brigstock, who at least was determined to rise, and had brought with her a trophy of her journey, a ladies magazine purchased at the station, a horrible thing with patterns for antimacassars, which, as it was quite new, the first number, and seemed so clever, she kindly offered to leave for the house, was in the style of a vulgar old woman who wore silver jewellery and tried to pass off a gross avidity as a sense of the beautiful. By day's end it was clear to Fleet of that however Mona judged, the day had been determinate. Whether or no she felt the charm, she felt the challenge. At an early moment Owen Gareth would be able to tell his mother the worst. Nevertheless, when the elder lady at bedtime, coming in a dressing-gown and a high fever to the younger one's room, cried out, She hates it, but what will she do? Fleda pretended vagueness, playing at obscurity, and assented disingenuously to the proposition that they at least had a respite. The future was dark to her, but there was a silken thread she could clutch in the gloom. She would never give Owen away. He might give himself, he even certainly would, but that was his own affair, and his blunders, his innocence, only added to the appeal he made to her. She would cover him, she would protect him, and beyond thinking her a cheerful inmate, he would never guess her intention, any more than, beyond thinking her clever enough for anything, his acute mother would discover it. From this hour, with Mrs. Gareth, there was a flaw in her frankness. Her admirable friend continued to know everything she did. What was to remain unknown was the general motive. From the window of her room, the next morning before breakfast, the girl saw Owen in the garden with Mona, who strolled beside him with a listening parasol, but without a visible look for the great florid picture that had been hung there by Mrs. Gareth's hand. Mona kept dropping her eyes as she walked, to catch the sheen of her patent-leather shoes, which resembled a man's, and which she kicked forward a little, it gave her an odd movement, to help her see what she thought of them. When Fleda came down, Mrs. Gareth was in the breakfast-room, and at that moment Owen, through a long window, passed in alone from the terrace, and very endearingly kissed his mother. It immediately struck the girl that she was in their way, for hadn't he been born on a wave of joy exactly to announce, before the Brigstocks departed, that Mona had at last faltered out the sweet word he had been waiting for? He shook hands with his friendly violence, but Fleda contrived not to look into his face. What she liked most to see in it was not the reflection of Mona's big boot-toes. She could bear well enough that young lady herself, but she couldn't bear Owen's opinion of her. She was on the point of slipping into the garden, when the movement was checked by Mrs. Gareth suddenly drawing her close, as if for the morning embrace, and then, while she kept her there with the bravery of the night's repose, breaking out, "'Well, my dear boy, what does your young friend there make of our odds and ends?' "'Oh, she thinks they're all right.' 
Fleda immediately guessed from his tone that he had not come in to say what she supposed. There was even something in it to confirm Mrs. Gareth's belief that the danger had dropped. She was sure, moreover, that his tribute to Mona's taste was a repetition of the eloquent words in which the girl had herself recorded it. She could indeed hear, with all its vividness, the pretty passage between the pair. "'Don't you think it's rather jolly, the old shop?' "'Oh, it's all right,' Mona had graciously remarked. And then they had probably, with a slap on the back, run another race up or down a green bank. Fleda knew Mrs. Gareth had not yet uttered a word to her son that would have shown him how much she feared, but it was impossible to feel her friend's arm round her and not become aware that this friend was now throbbing with a strange intention. Owen's reply had scarcely been of a nature to usher in a discussion of Mona's sensibilities, but Mrs. Gareth went on in a moment with an innocence of which Fleda could measure the cold hypocrisy. "'Has she any sort of feeling for nice old things?' The question was as fresh as the morning light. "'Oh, of course she likes everything that's nice.' And Owen, who constitutionally disliked questions, an answer was almost as hateful to him as a trick to a big dog, smiled kindly at Fleda, and conveyed that she would understand what he meant even if his mother didn't. Fleda, however, mainly understood that Mrs. Gareth, with an odd, wild laugh, held her so hard that she hurt her. "'I could give up everything without a pang, I think, to a person I could trust, I could respect.' The girl heard her voice tremble under the effort to show nothing but what she wanted to show, and felt the sincerity of her implication that the piety most real to her was to be on one's knees before one's high standard. The best things here, as you know, are the things your father and I collected, things all that we worked for and waited for and suffered for. Yes, cried Mrs. Gareth, with a fine freedom of fancy, there are things in this house that we almost starved for. They were our religion, they were our life, they were us. And now they're only me, excepting that they're also you, thank God, a little you dear, she continued, suddenly inflicting on Fleda a kiss apparently intended to knock her into position. There isn't one of them I don't know and love, yes, as one remembers and cherishes the happiest moments of one's life. Blindfold in the dark, with the brush of a finger, I could tell one from another. They're living things to me, they know me, they return the touch of my hand. But I could let them all go, since I have to, so strangely, to another affection, another conscience. There's a care they want, there's a sympathy that draws out their beauty. Rather than make them over to a woman ignorant and vulgar, I think I'd deface them with my own hands. Can't you see me, Fleda, and wouldn't you do it yourself? She appealed to her companion with glittering eyes. I couldn't bear the thought of such a woman here. I couldn't. I don't know what she'd do. She'd be sure to invent some devilry, if it should be only to bring in her own little belongings and horrors. The world is full of cheap gimcracks in this awful age, and they're thrust in at one at every turn. They'd be thrust in here on top of my treasures, my own. Who would save them for me? I ask you who would? And she turned again to Fleda with a dry, strained smile. Her handsome, high-nosed, excited face might have been that of Don Quixote tilting at a windmill. Drawn into the eddy of this outpouring, the girl, 
scared and embarrassed, laughed off her exposure, but only to feel herself more passionately caught up, and, as it seemed to her, thrust down the fine open mouth, it showed such perfect teeth, with which poor Owen's slow cerebration gaped. You would, of course, only you in all the world, because you know you feel as I do myself, what's good and true and pure. No severity of the moral law could have taken a higher tone in this implication of the young lady, who had not the only virtue Mrs. Gareth actively esteemed. You would replace me, you would watch over them, you would keep the place right, she austerely pursued, and with you here, yes, with you, I believe I might rest at last in my grave. She threw herself on Fleda's neck, and before Fleda, horribly shamed, could shake her off, had burst into tears which couldn't have been explained, but which might perhaps have been understood. End of chapter 3